Well, I had a sermon planned this morning, and it's in a three-ring binder waiting for next Sunday. (laughs) No, I was showering and was inspired to preach on the prodigal son. And he didn't speak to me audibly, but I taught this passage this Friday to the Bible Bee community, and wanted to share it with you on Father's Day. And really what inspired me to share this today was in light of last week's events in Orlando. And Nathan was right. Our first reaction is to weep with those who weep. These are people made in the image of God. And it was a heinous crime, first and foremost, against God to to murder, to play God and judge people for a particular sin is not our role, that is God's prerogative. And for any who came out and said that was God's condemnation on the gay community, watch yourself because a church will be next. And then what is your answer? Maybe they'll say, well, that church is preaching heresy. And we have a way of looking at world events and interpreting the way we want to interpret them when, honestly, we have no idea what God was doing there. But we know God is sovereign. We know there is sin in the world. There is evil. He has conquered sin on the cross. And he will come again and conquer all evil. Amen. Amen. And so we grieve with those who grieve. And yet, I wanted to point to two wrong views of God today and then go to the prodigal son and let the Lord teach us. Two wrong views. One, of course, by the shooter who I'm sure believed in his heart of hearts that God's holiness and moral standard needed to be upheld. I'm sure in his heart of hearts believed he was honoring God and that God was pleased with him for his actions. Somebody has to do something about all this sin and immorality and corruption. And he took it upon himself to play God. But the other wrong response, I read an article in the New York Times from Frank Brunei, who claims to be a Christian. He's about the most conservative the New York Times will allow to report. And he is homosexual. And he said that it is conservative Christians' fault because we have created an environment that is hostile to homosexuality. And he said the only right response in the light of the tragedy is to celebrate homosexuality with the gay community to show solidarity. And so it becomes one of those Dilemmas where the culture is trying to shove two options at you and neither of them sound palatable or right. To be unloving and judgmental or to be completely accepting and celebratory. Where's, where's the right view biblically? And I want us to see in those two responses and as we go to God's word and look at the prodigal son that we tend to err to two extremes, to two extremes. One who sees God's holiness and yet sees it in the wrong light, 
that shooters should see his own unworthiness in the light of God's holiness. His proper response should be to fall on his face in repentance, not force a certain kind of sinner to repent. And he didn't even offer them repentance. He just came in as judge, jury, and executioner. But the other improper response is this blanket, hey, God is this God of love who accepts you just the way you are and wants you to be happy and whatever it will take for you to be happy, you should pursue your dreams and pursue the things that you think will bring you satisfaction and happiness. And both views of God are wrong. And we have been saying from this pulpit again and again that the story of the Bible is that this is exactly our problem. Is that instead of going to the Word of God and bowing our knee to the God who reveals Himself in the Word of God, we ignore the Word of God and make a God in our own image and then worship that God. And so we end up just worshiping ourselves. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, see our Lord masterfully teach the proper view of God because He is God. He is God in human flesh. Yes, God has revealed Himself to us in nature and we've been saying, this is my Father's world. And we sang figuratively that God speaks to me in the rustling grass. Yet the problem with rustling grass is that the language isn't specific enough. We know from creation that God is powerful. He's lovely and beautiful. He's intelligent, creative. And yet we need specific revelation to tell us exactly who this God is, what He is like, what His attributes are, what He expects from us, how we can please Him, and what He's going to do in this world. We need specific revelation to tell us that. We can't glean that just by looking at nature. And then because of man's fallenness and our tendency to pervert Scripture, Jesus came in the flesh to show us this is what the Father looks like. The disciples said, Lord, show us the Father. And He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. This is what holiness and perfection and beauty and justice and mercy and law and grace looks like perfectly lived out. And for all those who would receive him as Lord and Savior, the right to be called children of God, the Gospel of John tells us. But this created a dilemma for the culture in which he was incarnated. Often we come to our Bible when we bring our own 21st century American culture to the Bible, and then we get confused about the teaching. You have to understand that the culture Jesus was addressing was an honor-shame culture, not the guilt-forgiveness culture we live in. The natural man wants to live in an honor-shame culture. The highest virtue being, I am honored by my fellow man. 
And whatever it takes, whether honest or dishonest, as long as I am honored by my fellow man, that was the highest virtue in Jesus' time. It takes the gospel and years of retraining to bring us to a place where we see the world as a guilt-forgiveness culture. Because we've lived in this guilt-forgiveness culture, it's been used against us in the last few decades. Terms like bigot and hater and intolerant makes Americans feel guilty. Like we've oppressed everybody and retribution and restoration needs to happen. And forces have preyed on that proper guilt that God has placed in us because we are sinners and it's twisted it and perverted it and now has said anybody who isn't allowed to live the way they want to live is now being oppressed. And somehow that's your fault and that's my fault. And don't you dare speak up against anything or stand on your biblical convictions. Our culture is turning into an honor-shame type of culture. And this is why we're struggling so much as Christians with the current election. Neither candidate represents most of the virtues that we would want in a leader. We want honesty. We want integrity. We want compassion. We want those who look to the Word of God. For their guidance, who bow the knee to the God of the universe and have received Christ as Savior. This is who we want to follow. And yet, we're rapidly becoming a nation where might makes right. And who cares about my actual record? It's about what I can do for you. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Or the woman behind the curtain. And so when we go to the Old Testament and we see these Pharisees and Jesus rebuking them for being hypocrites, you need to understand that hypocrisy wasn't that big a deal back then. It's kind of the way people lived. To say one thing and do another, as long as what you as long as you had the position and seat of honor in society, that's all that mattered. And the Pharisees, being the religious leaders of the day, believed in their heart of hearts that they were in the right, that they had the right view about God, and that God was pleased with them. Why wouldn't they be? Or why wouldn't He be? We keep the law. We uphold a high view of God's law. We live righteously. We have the position of honor. We're rich. That's proof that God is happy with us and blessing us. And all those rotten sinners out there, the poor and the destitute who can't get their act together, are suffering under God's heavy hand of judgment. And there was no place for grace or mercy. So if you were a sinner and publicly labeled as a sinner, there wasn't much hope for you. 
So when Jesus comes and spends time with the lost, this is confusing to them. At best, at worst, it's ugly. Why would this man who claims to be a man of God, a holy man, a righteous man, a prophet of God, defile himself by spending time intimately dining with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, and the lot? I say to you today, if you were transported in a time machine to first century Palestine, because we're in a conservative Bible-believing church as we should be, you would probably feel more comfortable hanging out with the Pharisees at first. Until they deemed that you were no longer fit or worthy to be dining with them. And yet that doesn't mean you want to go hang out then with the filthy Sinners, where does that leave you? You would, you would not find a place as a Bible-believing Christian to be comfortable in first century Palestine. The things that we hold near and dear to our hearts had to be taught to us. We needed to be regenerated to even accept these teachings of God. They don't come to the natural man. So Jesus comes, and they don't know he's God. We know. We get to know that part of the story, which makes the story all the more fascinating because these people are telling God to his face, so they don't know he's God, that you don't know God, we know God. And we'll tell you what he's like. And you claim to be from God, and you're doing these miracles, and you've got this huge following... But starting in chapter 15, verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Which doesn't sound like a big deal to you. Because we're all going to barbecue tonight and all sit around the table as sinners. Saved by grace. But everybody, thank you, every night. But they didn't have that category. They had category of righteous and sinner. Righteous and sinner. And they considered themselves righteous. Self-righteous. We keep the law perfectly. Not only the law of Moses, but a few extra laws we've added for good measure. And they didn't even keep the laws that they made for themselves perfectly, but they had convinced themselves that they had. That's what hypocrisy does. So he, being Jesus, told them this parable. Parables are a great way to teach. You give a story that everybody can associate with and understand in the natural realm in order to reveal a truth about the spiritual realm that we can't understand in our natural man because we don't understand the spiritual realm. Parable in Greek, para, alongside, bole, to cast, to cast alongside. A a natural story cast alongside a spiritual truth. So he says, what man among you 
If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now again, because of our culture, we're going to miss a very important point here. Jesus has just insulted the scribes and Pharisees by having them consider themselves to be shepherds. No self-respecting Pharisee would ever be a shepherd. It is the bottom of society. It is the last job one accepts when he can do nothing else. Almost rather be a slave than a shepherd. And we have this noble view of shepherdhood and shepherding because our Lord himself called himself the good shepherd. And when Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds watching over their flocks by night. But that's exactly the point, is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings came to the lowly and the meek. First. And so he says, I want you to imagine you're a shepherd. Right away they'd be seething. But there's a crowd around, and the crowd loves Jesus, so they're they're not going to cut him off. Imagine you're a shepherd... And really he's saying, we all know enough about shepherding that the shepherd would be in big trouble if he lost a sheep. They're not his sheep. He's usually doing the job for a wealthy landowner and sheep owner. So he's lost a sheep. He's going to be in big trouble. That sheep is valuable. Also, the shepherd developed a very caring relationship with the sheep. I guess you spend enough time with animals, that's what happens, right? And so he leaves the 99 in the open pasture to go after the one. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And so we, we get that. Uh, one sheep seems insignificant to you and I, but to the shepherd, very significant. And then Jesus leaves the earthly story and brings us to the spiritual truth. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I wonder if he looked them right in the eye with the same sarcasm in his voice that I just used. Because there is no 99 persons that need not repent. There is none righteous, no, not one, the scriptures teach us. But in their worldview, they were righteous. And as bad as it was for them to consider themselves shepherds, Jesus has just clearly and unequivocally labeled Almighty God as a shepherd. They would have been incensed. Who is this man who calls God a shepherd? But they would forget the Old Testament where God reveals himself as a shepherd. And in fact, rebukes the religious leaders in the Old Testament, calling them the shepherds of Israel that are leading his people astray. So he moves on to a second story. Or what woman, oh, 
Are you asking us to consider ourselves to be women? The only thing worse than being a shepherd for these Pharisees would be to be a woman. In fact, we have rabbinic prayers from the day that thank God that you did not make me a woman. If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? We have this woman here. She seems to be single, maybe maybe a widow, or just was never married. But in first century Palestine, she would not have had many opportunities to make a living. Ten coins would be her net worth. She's just lost 10% of her net worth. This isn't like when you drop a dime and it rolls under the stove. This isn't like that. If you carried your entire life savings around your waist in a belt and ten, a tenth of it fell off somewhere and you couldn't find it, you would stop everything and search for it. One of our favorite comedians as a family, Brian Regan, says... I can't stand it when I see parents scolding their children when they accidentally let go of a balloon. They say, oh, knock it off. We can get you another. He said, for for a four-year-old, that would be the equivalent of taking your wallet out of your pocket and it floating off. You would scream too. This woman just lost 10% of her net worth and really has no means to make it back. This is... How God views the people created in his likeness. And when she finds the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now I know you wouldn't call your friends if you lost the coin. Because that's not the equivalent. We thought we misplaced a tenth of our 401k and we found it. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is what brings God joy and happiness, which is not on the radar of the Pharisees at all. Remember the original question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? As if just one of them repents, it's a good day. It's a a worthy day. It's a great day in heaven. This is what God gets excited about. Brothers and sisters, this is what we should be excited about. Evangelism, discipleship. And not just the evangelism, it it carries into the discipleship. Heaven rejoices when you and I turn from our sin and turn to God. Stop thinking in worldly ways and think in biblical ways. That's why I, I love discipleship, or we call it counseling, but it's just discipleship. When you see a stubborn, hard hearted sinner break and embrace God's grace and mercy and and love and extend that to another human being. It makes all the stress of ministry worth it.
I appreciate so much the financial support my family gets from this church, but honestly, that wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't survive ministry. You would burn out, you would leave, you would find something else to do. It's when one sinner repents, it makes all the stress and all the complaining and grumbling go away and really brings into your knees in humility. And you remember why God set up the church in the first place. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about, people. If you're not excited about seeing sinners repent, you're in the wrong religion. You've got the wrong God. The Pharisees had the wrong God. They thought they had the right God. They thought they had the God of the Bible. And they were not excited to see sinners repent. No categories for that. Be perfect. Keep the law perfectly. God will be pleased with you. So then he gets to the third story. And this is... You can't really read the prodigal son without the first two stories because it's building here. This is what makes God excited. Now he's going to present two sons. And he said, a man had two sons. And now the Pharisees would be saying, okay, finally, something we can associate with. I'm not a shepherd. I'm not a woman. But a man with two sons, that's noble. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. We read right past that line. This had to be taught to me, so I'm teaching it to you. I'm just passing on what I received, uh, honestly, from, from John MacArthur. And you can read the book, The Tale of Two Sons, or go on gty.org and hear his sermons on Luke 15. This statement is so utterly ugly in an honor-shame society. Probably the Pharisees listening at this point would have spat in the dirt when they heard this. Or some kind of outrage, maybe even somebody ripping their cloak. Oh, no son would ever say that to his father because what he's just told his father is, I wish you were dead. I don't get my inheritance until you're dead. So give it to me now. I'm better off with you dead. I'm tired of living under your thumb. I'm tired of your rules. I don't love you. I don't appreciate you. I want to go have my fun. Give me my inheritance now. And being the younger son, he would be entitled to a third of the inheritance. The older son gets a double portion. So he had that working against him too. I'm always going to be the younger son and I'm always going to have a smaller inheritance. So I might as well take it now and go to a faraway country and go have fun. And being young and foolish, he thought that money would last him a lifetime. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose 
living. Now we understand the parable is being taught to show us something in the earthly realm. We understand that the, the Father is God and we're, we're the sons. Which son are you? That's the question. Notice that the Father is not celebrating that the Son wants to go party. We don't get a lot of the filler information, but you can be sure that the Father's upset, rightly so. But he does something very unexpected, because in this culture, a man of honor, in an honor-shame culture, the proper thing to do would have been to beat the snot out of the Son to backhand him across the face, to, to, to spit at his feet. And if he was merciful, say, those words will never part your lips ever again. And possibly, if the son didn't repent, he would have taken him to the town square and told the elders at the gate that my son is now dead to me. He has no rights to the family inheritance or name, and maybe even dress in sackcloth and ashes and act out the fact that his son was dead to him. And all of this in order to maintain his honor and dignity in society. This is what his fellow man would have expected him to do. We heard, we, we heard what your son said to you. What would you do to him? Well, I liquefied a third of my assets, liquidated a third of my assets and told him to go have fun. He would have lost all respect and honor in that culture. I half jokingly said in first service that this is college. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but it's often what happens. Parents sacrificing for the children to go off and play the prodigal at school. And most of our schools aren't helping the kids to not be prodigals. So. But don't miss the point here. But the, the point being that the father is doing something radically different than what the culture expected of him. Because Jesus is teaching the point of why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Your view of God is wrong. I'm here to correct your view of God. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. He's out of money already. And his family name means nothing in this faraway country. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, working for some pagan. That would be unthinkable for a Jewish boy of a noble family that owned land. And the only job he could get was being sent in the field to feed swine. Uh, pigs, the most unclean animal to Jews, even to Orthodox Jews this day. Not only would you not eat it or handle, but to be anywhere near. And really this story is, is to the Pharisees' ears, almost preposterous. Like, 
it, life couldn't get any worse than this. It's, it's like hearing the story of Job and going, really? And then his whole family, and then all of his servants, and then his everything? It's, and then he gets this disease? It's, it's almost hyperbolic. Like, uh, this couldn't happen. This is about as worse of a life as you could possibly concoct for a young Jewish man. But certainly, Jesus being the master storyteller, they're hanging on his every word. What's going to happen to this boy? They're thinking he's gotten exactly what he deserves. And they wouldn't be far off. And yet, we're all that boy. That's the point of the story. We're all that boy. God's given us life and breath and good things, and we squander it on profligate living. On things that don't matter eternally. We, we have heaven waiting for us and we settle for cheap substitutes here on earth. It's displaying that the younger son had no love for the father or the things that were important to the father. And by extension, that, that is us. That is all of humanity. Let me... Just when you think it's getting worse, he's starving, and it says he would gladly fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. He would have gladly filled his stomach, but he can't because these seed pods are undigestible to humans. That's all that's left. The pigs wouldn't even eat the seed pods. When you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, and you've hit the end of your rope, and life can't seem like it can get any worse, it's when God does his best work. Amen. He's, he's, he's in figure to hell. He's this close to heaven. And he wouldn't know it. But we, we know it. We know the rest of the story. He's, he's this close. In the world, we think that he's this his son to come back. He wanted his son to come back. And that would not have been an honorable thing in that culture. What's Moshe doing out there on the outskirts of town? He's not waiting for his son, is he? How embarrassing. It's not like his son went off to war and he's waiting for him to come back. His son embarrassed them and publicly humiliated his father, but his father wants him back. And while he was still a long way off, his father Solomon felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Evidently, this would have been an extremely embarrassing and dishonoring thing to do to run as a grown man in this culture. You'd have to gird up your robes, and expose your legs. Which, for us, I'd rather be wearing shorts right now, but first century Palestine, it's just not the done thing. To run through town, and not only to run through town, but to run to welcome back this ingrate, dishonorable, prostitute-chasing, 
and who knows what else, covered in filth and muck and pig poop. Is that going to make it on the, the tape? Yeah. <laughs> what a sight this, this boy must have been. Famished, emaciated, stinking, wretched. Isn't that a picture of sinners? That is us, people. Compared to a holy and righteous and perfect God. And he has his story ready. I got one chance at this. I'm going to say sorry, and then I'm going to come up with this plan to pay back everything I squandered. I'll work as, a, as one of my father's hired men. And the father will have none of that. Not, you're not paying for your salvation. If, if, if this kid's getting saved today, it's going to be all the father's grace and love and mercy. And the Father is going to get all the glory here. And the Pharisees can't see glory here. And it's the most glorious thing in the universe. Grace. This is an honorable Father. And they can't see it. Jesus is elevating honor to the highest degree. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And these are true and correct and right words that every sinner must say. No cheap grace here. No no forgiveness without repentance. But before he even gets to the part of the story where he says, "I'll, I'll pay everything back. The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And I wonder if the crowd hearing the story cheered. Because the crowd was filled with filthy, rotten sinners who, by the Pharisees' teaching, had no hope. And now his older son was in the field. Oh yeah, we forgot about him. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Like, who's throwing a party without me? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But, there's that but again, he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him, That's dishonorable to the Pharisees. They don't even see that they're the older son at this point. They see this petulant younger son who insulted the dad and then comes home. They see a dad who dishonored himself by throwing a party for this ingrate. And now they see this guy who's being now dishonored by his older son who won't come in. And the father goes out and pleads with him. It's not the father's role to plead with his son. You do what the father says. 
Now, maybe actually they're seeing the actions of the older son and saying, ah, I'm not going into the party either. Finally, somebody's doing something honorable in this story. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. There it is. Self-righteousness in a nutshell. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, he didn't care about his brother, when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes... And by the way, it ate into his cut. If they would have waited till their father died, they would have gotten far more than what they got. The son of yours blew my inheritance on prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And by the way, they put the robe on him that would have been reserved for the oldest son at his wedding on his filthy, pig-stinking body, and gave him the family ring, which was signified the authority of the family. If you wore the ring, you had the authority of the father. The son has the authority of the father. That's why when Jesus called himself the son of God, they picked up stones to kill him, because he was saying, I'm equal with God. The son and the father are co-regents. They reign together. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me. Like the Pharisees, you're my chosen people. I called you to be a special people unto myself. You've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours, this brother of yours, he doesn't say the son of mine, this brother of yours, was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Forget about the money and the land and the animals. It's not that important compared to people in their eternal life. So come in. Stop the pouting. Let's celebrate. There will be plenty for you too. Right? And the story just ends. And you think a reasonable person would say, you're right, Father. I'm going to come in and party. You're still the oldest son. But the story just ends because Jesus is, is teaching, this is you. Pharisees, you're the older son. You think you care about the Father, you don't. Because the Father cares about Seeing a sinner repent more than anything else. Well, what about his name and his honor and his great namesake? Oh, you think being merciless is great for God's name? You think that's a God people want to worship? People trapped in religions where they don't know whether or not 
God is pleased with them to the point where they think blowing up other people is the only way they can have assurance? Are those the only two options, the younger son or the older son, or is there a third way? And there really is a third way. Repent and and learn to be like the Father. Yes, uphold righteousness in biblical morality. But remember, we all fall short of the mark. And so let's celebrate the things God celebrates when one sinner repents. So how does the story end? Does the older brother go in and party with the father? MacArthur says we know how the story ends. Though we want the ending to go something like this, and the older son, seeing the error of his ways, humbles himself, apologizes to his father, joins the party, and embraces his brother, and celebrates the things his father celebrates. But that's not how it ends. It ends like this. And the older brother, disgusted with his dishonorable father, picks up a chunk of wood and bludgeons him to death. That's what the cross is. We can't have that God. We can't have that view of the Father. That is dishonorable. And so they killed Jesus. Because they thought they knew what God was really like. And an honorable God would have just annihilated the sinners. Folks, if, if that were our God, we'd all be gone. We'd all be toast with no hope. It'd be amazing any of us are still around. And the Pharisees understood exactly what he was teaching and from that day forward plotted to kill him and they, they did kill him. So on this Father's Day, I say to us all, be careful Be careful that you don't look at yourself and the kind of father you are, the kind of person you are, and assume that's exactly what God should be like, because I have my act together. Go to God's word and discover who God really is and worship him for who he really is And if he clearly says that the thing that brings him the greatest joy is when one sinner repents, then let's party when one sinner repents. Let's make that our reason for living. Go find sinners. They're not hard to find. There's one in the mirror. And let's glorify God together for his mercy found on the cross and in faith in Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you that you are this God. Where would we be if you were anything else? Forgive us for having wrong views of you and then judging other people by our own standard. Father, also forgive us for when we take your mercy for granted and we sin presumptuously, both Responses to you are wrong. Show us the third way, the better way, the right way. To strive for holiness 
knowing that only by your grace can we be justified before you in heaven. And only by your grace can we grow in righteousness and sanctification. May that be the message we teach the world and teach our own hearts and our own children. On this Father's Day and every day until you return. In Christ's name I pray, amen.